You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Jamie Lauren Kalis. Jamie, could you introduce yourself? Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, um, I'm Jamie Lauren Kalis. I write for the New York Times Magazine, other places, um, freelance writer, and just did a story on ASMR, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so that's uh, that's the main thing we're going to talk about today. Um, and if we have some time, we might talk about another acronym, uh, Jewish American <laughs> Princesses, also known as JAPS, but we'll, but we'll see what, if we have time to get to that. But we're mainly talking about this piece that ran in Times Ma- Magazine recently, uh, how ASMR became a sensation. Um, so, okay, so if someone has never heard of ASMR before, what is it? Yeah, so it stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, which doesn't really help you understand what it is. But basically, it's this feeling that people get in their body. Uh, it's a tingling sensation, and people get it in response to different stimuli. But it starts in the head, it moves down your neck, and then it spreads throughout the body. So it's kind of like chills, though you can't see any kind of like goosebumps on the skin. And people generally get it into response to like certain kinds of like semi-intimate things, like maybe whispering. or the, One of the really common ones is when people get a haircut. Like, when they play with your dry hair and they're like, what do you want to do today? Some people get this, like, euphoric, all-over body sensation. You almost can't describe it without doing this constantly. <laughs> um, but I don't I don't experience it, but there's been this whole uh, online subculture that sort of discovered it and then has formed around it. So it's kind of weird writing about it without actually feeling the sensation. But it's a pretty big, like, online weirdo thing. Right. Um, yeah, so I like the piece a lot, and... I also don't experience it uh, much to my chagrin, and so like reading about it, learning more about it is, I guess, the closest I can get. So that's why I was interested in it. And um, it's so strange. Like, I, I think when I first heard about it, I was like, "Oh, this is just some stupid internet thing." And then it started popping up more. And then uh, my wife got into it a little bit. I was watching some of the videos, and she was feeling something, maybe not like the full, <laughs> the full blown thing, but uh, it doesn't work for me. So. Uh, you start the piece with uh, an interesting bit of like recent history, which is how it was how this um, phenomenon was named, and the person who named it, which which really surprised me because it's such a strange name, and then it's it's not what you would expect. So how did how did who gave it the the name ASMR? Yeah, so there's this woman Jennifer Allen, and she had been feeling like she'd felt ASMR her whole life, but. Every couple of years, she'd, like, go online and be, like, tingling head and spine, like, brain orgasm. Like, she'd be searching for all these different terms, trying to be, like, what what is happening to me? Like, she knew it was pleasant, and I don't think she was worried, like, oh, I have a, an illness. Like, it wasn't, like, a WebMD situation. But she kept just going online and looking, like, do other people feel this? And for years, like, almost 10 years, she couldn't find anything online. And then all of a sudden, one day, she searches it, and, like, someone maybe six months prior had started a discussion thread on this kind of, like, obscure message board called Steady Health, and people there were saying, like, oh, my God, I feel this feeling, too. I've always wondered if other people feel it. And from there, kind of a little community formed around this thread, and Alan became a big part of it. And then initially in the beginning, there was a lot of, like, are we sex freaks? Like, is this a kinky thing? People were calling it, like, brain orgasm. And they kind of arrived on the idea, like, well, it's it's intimate, but it's not about sex. We're not feeling horny. And Alan thought, like, we need a name that sort of more seriously represents our community and through that, she was like, I'm going to come up with a really clinical sounding name. So she made up this acronym, which isn't actually like 
a pathological term, but it kind of sounds like one, uh, which helps with their credibility a little, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that it's like, so she's not a medical professional in any way or like a psychologist or anything? No, she does like cybersecurity, I think. Okay, so she kind of like, you like made up this long, like, you know, 50 50 letters in this, the term for this phrase that has an acronym and it was like what she thought like a medical professional would would name something like this, but it it stuck. she wasn't like, 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 she's a very smart person. I don't think she was being like, oh, like now it's a medical thing. But I think she was like really cognizant of like the way people think of pseudo-sexual phenomenons can like be really altered by the positioning. So I think she was really like made a very conscious decision to like take it out of sex weirdo world and put it into like uh, this other kind of like pathological world. Mm-hmm. Um, so the you use the uh, uh, the phrase that ASMR uh, leapfrogged science altogether, and it kind of went from like the initial like core group of people who are interested in this, and then suddenly it went viral or something, and now it's huge. But like, it, there wasn't like the intermediate step of uh, you know experts studying this, trying to figure out what what's actually happening. So now there's like millions of people we possibly watching YouTube videos of this and experiencing this thing, but uh, it's still like mis- entirely mysterious to science. There's, there's like only been a couple papers published on it. And maybe since it's like not harming anyone or something, <laughs> and maybe the, it, it's not going to be studied that much. So you know, what's the, what's the state of like the understanding of what is actually happening? Yeah. So basically a lot of people realize they felt it. And then like maybe historically or at other points in time, like, oh, you would realize there was, like, something about the human body that was widespread in a population, and the next step would be, like, let's study this, and then, like, because the world moves slow, it would just take some time to study it, and then eventually we'd have, like, an understanding of it. But now we have this whole other separate intervention, which is the internet that moves about one jajillion times faster (laughs) than science, which is, like, a very slow world. So ASMR isn't, like, real, like, it sounds like something scientists would want to research because, like, it's weird, but it's not really something you can get funding for. It sounds sort of crackpot. So, like, there's a few scientists researching it, but, like, they don't have a lot of funding and they don't have a ton of credibility. So it's, like, been very slow to get things like fMRI studies or, like, like other types of brain imaging around helping us understand what ASMR is. Meanwhile, on the Internet, there's been this huge amount of people that are like, I love feeling this pleasurable sensation. Let me just make content around it and share content around it. So, like, the Internet, like... There is a slow crawl of science, but, like, the internet has outpaced it at such a dramatic rate that it's, like, science will never catch up to what this has become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you think they need, like, uh, you know, like, Elon Musk needs to come out as saying that he, like, gets ASMR and, like, is going to start, like, an institute of <laughs> of study and try to figure out exactly what's going on. Or this... It's just so hard to justify, like, like, maybe there is some potential here for, like, we could be using the, these types of videos to help people with PTSD or, like, people with anxiety disorders, like, it's not a totally useless sensation, but the urgency of it compared to something like, I, I don't know, like even just anxiety generally or like cancer, like it's very hard to justify like expending resources on something that sounds so new age. Right. Um, but like it is happening. Like we're, we're sure of that at this point that like this isn't, this, there are way too many people are doing this for it to be like a mass delusion or something. Yeah, and it shows up, like, when they do fMRI images, and they actually, so GB is, like, the main ASMR YouTuber that I profiled in the story, and her videos were used in this study at the University of Sheffield, I think that's how you say it, Sheffield, mm-hmm. um, where they put people in an MRI, an fMRI machine, and they watched her videos, and, like, you can see the activity of the tingles in the brain, it lights up the kind of, like, uh, I forget 
there's this like part of the brain that lights up when you do like grooming tasks or like social bonding behaviors. And like, they can see that it's a real thing happening in the brain. It's not something like, I don't know if you know about like Morgellons where like people think they have fibers on their skin, but it's like fake. It's psychosomatic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a psychosomatic condition. It's a real thing people are feeling. We don't know why only some people feel it, but we can, we can observe it using like brain imaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the, the – uh, a scientist who is studying this um, that you inter- interview has, like, a possible evolutionary psychology explanation to this of, like, the the whispering and grooming. And it's, it's kind of like a nurturing atmosphere. It all seems like something that a mother would do to a baby. And so – but it's unclear why um, this would only apply to some people and not others. Um, yeah, does that, I mean, does that explanation make sense to you? I mean, I'm always, like, I hear the phrase evolutionary biology, and I just immediately feel skeptical, but, like, <laughs> I do, it, it would make sense that, like, there would be something in our body that, like, rewards us for, like, having non-sexual intimacy with other people, and I think that does already exist in the sense that, like, it feels good to hang out with people sometimes. Like, if, if humans are social people, it totally makes sense that this could be, like, something related to our survival. Um I think we don't really understand the mechanism of ASMR well enough to like think about it beyond that. Like back to the question of like who, like, like if everyone can't feel it, like why would this be evolutionary biology? But like, I think after doing this story, this is totally, I'm not a scientist. I'm just like some idiot. That writes <laughs> articles, but, like, like I'm not a person that's like super accessible, like able to access my feelings in deep ways. Like I think there is a personality component to this. And I do wonder like, Maybe everyone can feel ASMR. There are just certain people that are sort of like have a relationship to their feelings where like they maybe can't access a a tingling brain orgasm as much as like someone who's a little more open. It does seem there is some personality type similarities among the people who like can really feel this. Like I'm very type A kind of neurotic. Like I don't know if I was maybe like maybe with like 20 more years of therapy, I'll really be able to feel it. But I don't think I'm there yet. (laughs) That's interesting. Okay, so when you're like a fully self-actualized person, then you can hear ASMR and like you're in touch with your emotions, and it's it's the way to prove it. Like open to kind of weird like parasocial experiences. Like, like I went for this story and I had like a live ASMR session where this woman like painted my face with like a dry paintbrush and she like touched my ears very gently and uh, rubbed oil on my wrists and like just being the person I am, I think my first response was to be like anxious or like overly courteous. Whereas I think there are some people that are like, Oh, I'm having a weird experience. I'll just go with the flow. And I think when you have your, that barrier down, it might be that kind of person that can like let ASMR happen. Whereas I'm fighting it at every turn being like, I don't want to be weird. Like, uh, huh. yeah. Yeah. The experience you describe of the live ASMR thing is I would not want to undergo that, that experience of like having a Q-tip gently rubbed against your earlobe and, and other unusual things um i wonder if i mean just you know okay so we're saying that the ba- the thing about the babies who knows makes kind of sense but no evidence but like i wonder if like if that's true then like is every baby able to feel this when they're a baby and then that's why they could be calmed when you know you like rock them and hold them tight and then they get get you know they get pacified and then it like kind of fades away for some people I, that's speculation that has no evidence yeah, behind it the fun thing about this is sort of like, well, like any speculation is almost as as meaningful as any because we don't know. So like that sounds like a good theory. Like 
if you have like a hundred thousand dollars, maybe you could test it, but like <laughs> right. no one does. Right. Um, okay. So, um, so one thing that uh, I didn't even realize, even though I, I had known a little bit about this is that, um, it can be a purely visual, the triggers can be purely visual. Is that right? So like you start off the, the woman you described in the beginning who named it, um, ASMR, she noticed it when she was watching like videos or like a computer animation of, uh, from outer space of like the globe receding. And yeah. it, whereas I thought it always, I thought it was like purely a sound based thing. And there's all these different tapping on things like cutting soap, eat, like eating crunchy things. And these are various possible triggers, but just look like looking alone is enough to, uh, to trigger it. And I, I don't think this is even like the most common, the most common triggers are generally sounds like whispering, but it's definitely not like a sound based phenomenon. And even Jennifer Allen, and this isn't even in the story, but like, she says like after having experienced it so many times, she can kind of like think certain kinds of thoughts about like safety and security and incite the feeling without any kind of external stimuli. And there are some people like that. That's interesting. So it has more to do with like creating a certain kind of experience of like maybe safety or intimacy or like, I mean, sometimes it's not even about that. Cause like carving soap isn't intimate, but like, it's a lot about like rituals and like comfort. So like, I think you can do it through like, I'm, I'm sure there's like physical sensations people can get it from. It's not just sound. Yeah. I, I, know, the, I mean, it, it's somehow like the sound thing. Um, I mean, I think, did this come from South Park or something? There's like this internet meme about like the brown sound. It's like a sound you play and like that's, everyone poops. Yeah, that, that's yeah. like an old dirty joke. And then it somehow yeah. seems like you can infect someone with sound in a way. Whereas like just looking at something... I don't know. I guess, well, you know, there's like hypnotizing and like a spinning something or other, or like a, you know, a snake charmer kind of thing. I guess, I guess there's various ways you can be. The sound induced. does seem like more invasive in some way, or like, I think like there's something really a- appealing symbolically about like frequencies. Like people love like the idea that like frequencies can heal things or like, right. do you ever come across like bi- bi- binaural beats? I think it's called. It's no. like, it's these certain frequencies of music. They're like sort of techno-ish pulses people listen to them to fall asleep because they're supposed to put the brain in this certain like state so like i do think like because sound enters our body in like a little bit more of a tactile way people think of it as something that can be like healing whereas sight i guess it enters our body like i I don't quite know how our eyes work but like (laughs) sound is like a literal vibration like people think i think people want to believe that it's like really powerful yeah it does seem like it's obviously like the physics of it are different like sound is a wave Light is a, uh, photons are both, uh, right. atoms and waves or whatever. Sorry, um, to all my, my physics teacher, teacher in high school. But, um, yeah, and it does seem like metaphorically different somehow. Um, so a lot of the people, maybe most of them or almost all of them, of the people who are creating these videos, um, are women. Mm-hmm. And, well, do, is there an explanation for that? Or is that just a coincidence? I mean, I think there's a couple explanations. The the one I like the best is, like, okay, if this is a feeling that we get surrounding, like, intimacy and safety, like, even if this is a physiological sensation, like, those things, too, are, like, socially constructed in some ways. And, like, we live in a society, and the society is one where, like, women do most of, like, the caring roles, whether it's, like, mothering, being a girlfriend, being your waitress, like, cutting your hair, like, a lot of these sort of, like, intimate caring roles 
are done by women. So right, I do think right. just generally when we're looking for that kind of response, whether you're straight or gay or male or female, I think we do tend to look towards women for those things. And I think maybe after like another millennium of gender parity or whatever you want to call it, like then maybe we'll have male ASMR people. But like, I don't think we expect the same kind of caring for men. There are male ASMR artists. Most of them are gay men, which I think sort of fits into my theory of like, mm. they're also hairdressers. We also think of them stereotypically as like, more caring people in society like that's not objectively true but it does sort of play out in our history so it would sort of inform how we take in that information right and one of the uh, one of the videos you linked to which went viral a couple months ago is like a um uh woman pretending to be like a nurse in the middle ages caring huh? for someone dying of plague or something along those lines and so yeah. she's wearing a costume and, and so that's very odd but that's also like like you know if the nurses are like coded female and i i don't get what, exactly why someone would want to like imagine themselves dying of plague but um i think helplessness is like kind of part of it like i don't think people want to imagine themselves dying but like there is something like like, like when you're like a, a little girl like and you go to like sleepover parties like there is something really fun like people will play these games where it's like there's an egg on your head and like th this like thing where you're totally at the whim of someone else's like care or like touching you and they're like someone scratching your back like to be so powerless in that way and to feel so cared for. I think like situations of helplessness are really appealing in the ASMR fantasy because it's like you're a baby and you're being cared for. And like, that's not a thing you get to experience very often in adulthood and maybe only in clinical settings where you're like physically incapacitated. Right. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay. So then, then the, the question of like, how close is this to sex and pornography or sex work? comes in and uh, a couple like six months ago i saw something that patreon had kicked some of a couple asmr women off because they like classified them as doing sex work which isn't allowed on, on patreon but they said they were just doing asmr things um but yeah so the line is kind of and you know the like you you note that the um people call this like a braingasm uh, informally when they were trying to figure out what was going on so it is like um, sex adjacent or how, how would you how would you characterize it yeah so I think like one of the problems in talking about this and I get into it in the story a little bit but it's like as Americans like we we don't really have very good language for talking about sex like we have the language for talking about like sex when you're having it and we have language talking about sex when you're not having it but like all the various gray areas in between it whether it's like really really close friendship or it's like sexual harassment like all these other things that maybe invoke sex or involve sex or look towards sex whether it's consensual or not consensual like we don't have good words we're talking about like intermediary things so this is like a especially weird scenario because it's like this isn't sex and it's not sexual but it does deal with like intimacy which is a part of sex like hopefully if you're having good sex so like we just don't have language for that as as like americans like we're, we're very repressed so it's like very weird to be like oh, you can have something that's intimate and it's supposed to make you feel good and relaxed and, like, maybe it involves women, but it's not supposed to give you a boner. Like, we don't really have a word for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, like, I do think, like, there's... ASMR doesn't have to be about sex, but the idea that you'd want to feel, like, relaxed and comfortable, that is something that, like, ideally you want to have with your sexual partners, I think. Like, like when you're in a relationship and you love someone and they play with your hair, like, that's not sex, but it is, like, intimate. Right. And, and so this is like a, 
unless you do the in-person one, it's like a, you know, simulacrum or whatever of, of intimacy. And like, they're usually talking directly to the camera. And in the case of like, I assume they're, like they're the plague, plague nurse one and others, it's like, you know, they're looking at you and talking to you as though you were actually <laughs> right there with them. Um, so yeah. So, and then it's, so you mentioned, uh, this young woman, uh, is it Jibby? Jibby. Uh, who's yeah. like the, one of the top, uh, ASMR performers or artists. Do, do they call themselves artists? ASM artists is I one word. And then, uh, just like creators is fine. Like ASMR creators. I yeah. think that's like the YouTube branded term for them. Right. Um, and so she, uh, is making a living off of this through ads. And actually a, a question, like, um, you know, if you really want to be relaxed and you go to your favorite ASMR and then there's like a loud ad for Reebok shoes or something, you know, for the first 30 seconds, that seems bad. So how do they, is it like, is it like in, <laughs> is it like on a podcast where they read out the ad or something or, or how do they monetize? It's both a big complaint that you see on, in the comments on ASMR videos is like, uh, people will be like, oh, I was like watching video after video of relaxing noise. And then all of a sudden there was like, this jarring ad for like whatever, like definitely the the ads are just pretty random and like you can't click like only give me quiet, relaxing ads. So like that is a problem with the platform itself. The creators do do like sponsored content deals where they'll like, like a really funny one that was happening was I think KFC sent uh, buckets of fried chicken to people. And because it's so crispy, it was like crunch, crunch. But then there's this whole nother conversation that's happening because it's like when you're in this sort of like, relaxed susceptible state do you really want someone to be like buy crest toothpaste or like whatever like yeah that yeah that's like the classic sort of like, you know subliminal like, marketing thing or whatever yeah it seems very like do you ever see josie and the pussycats i was just tweeting about that this very day that's that so piece. <laughs> yeah, such a great movie. they put the ads in the songs and i'm always like if you're like just on the verge of falling asleep and like the asmr person is whispering like buy monsanto vegetables like that just seems so dicey but yeah i don't know i mean they're making tons like she's making tons of money she is very gb's very strategic about which ads she accepts like she tries to do only ads for like products that she thinks would actually be of use in some way to her clients so she's not selling like diet teas she's mostly selling like lay flat headphones that you can like lay on your side wearing like sort of these like things that appeal to like people that love relaxing yeah (laughs) that that makes sense and um yeah and but you the the I mean, the strange thing about the way you have to talk to her is that she has some number of, like, obsessive fans, uh, because it seems like some people maybe are, like, paranoid schizophrenic or something, and others are, like, feel, you know, just, like, fall in love with her and want to know everything about her, so you don't, um, you don't know, you don't say where she lives or her last name, and so it's, it's weird that she's, um, you know, kind of uh, broadcasting from an undisclosed location, and but has all the you know, has millions of followers, and people don't you know she doesn't say anything about her real life because there's some psychos out there. So that's just a new, I guess, kind of the new reality of like being popular on YouTube yeah. is that you're you know there are some crazy people out there who you know might become obsessed with you, and you don't like have the you know you can't like hire like a 24 hour bodyguards or something like that like a, a celebrity would do. Yeah, I think it's, like, weird because it's, like, well, there's the condition of being famous on the internet in the first place, and then there's also just being a woman on the internet and in the world. And so on top of that, to be one that's, like, actively courting, like, this image of intimacy, like, 
there's there's just crazies out there, and I think people, even non-crazy people, are like, I listen to this woman every single night when I'm falling asleep, and she like makes me feel good and happy. Like, I could see why that would be hard for someone who's going through like a really rough time of their life, maybe, and like is really reliant on these videos to feel good. Um, but I think this just maybe speaks to like larger needs about like working conditions for YouTubers, because like it sounds funny to be like, oh, we need to like have better working conditions for people that post online. But like, <laughs> unless we like it or not, it like is the way that like a lot of people make a living now. And it does seem like if we're going to keep having this kind of entertainment, like we do have protections for people who make other forms of entertainment. So like you would, I, I guess at some point in the future, we're going to need like unions and all kinds of other stuff for like internet creators, which is definitely a thing I'm interested in. But right now it's like a wild, wild west and people are making all these crazy forms and pe there's like people out there stalking them. So it's just like very weird and dark to me. Yeah, it, it is like the gold rush days It was of like yeah. a, a lawless realm. And um, yeah, I would welcome a, um, I mean, this this video is going to appear on YouTube. So I would welcome a YouTube uh, content creator union and if I could <laughs> get into it and if they offered uh, health insurance, that'd be nice as well. <laughs> um, so, okay, so... I mean, part of this, and I think this was, you, you delve into this in the piece, is that, like, there's a lot of lonely people out there. And um, beyond just the fact that this makes, like, a pleasant sensation in their brains uh, that, you know, they can feel and some pe other people can't feel, it's like, you know, someone is, like, whispering to them for half an hour, and it seems like they're talking just to them. And, um, you know, and giving them, like, you know, in this conversation we're having, like, I see your image in my Skype window and I'm um, talking to you, but then in the, the, like, videos I've watched, you know, it seems like the, the creator is staring directly in the camera, and if you're just sitting there looking at it, it seems like they're talking right to you, and, right. like, how often... Oh, thank you for having me on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how often, unless, like, you're, you're in, an like, a you know, intense um, relationship with another person, like, how often is there someone paying, like, direct attention to you for 30 minutes uninterrupted. They might give an ad, you know, every 10 minutes or so, but, um, that, you know, that's unusual, uh, not even at this moment in history, but I think probably most to have like undivided, <laughs> be undivided attention being given to you. And yeah, so, you know, the, the internet, like, it, like ad has atomized us in a lot of ways. Um, but this is like a weird way that people who are lonely and looking for some sort of, human connection can like get it you know yeah I think it's like I mean I, I have two thoughts on that which is one like of course now I just immediately forget the thought um, <laughs> what, like, like there like oh what was I gonna say oh uh, I don't know we can we, we can move on if you, oh, if you can't I remember, remember. What I was say. so like like it's easy to, like, look at that and be like, oh, look at these suckers, like, really getting drawn in by these, like, women who make these videos on the internet. Like, that could never happen to me. But, like, I just, like, speak, like, I'm, like, a relatively well-adjusted person. And, like, I go on social media every day. And, like, I don't think it's the kind of thing that happens once where it's, like, you watch the video and you're drawn in. It's more like, oh, like, over time, it's, like, there's people I follow on Instagram for years that I've never met. But, like, I feel like I know them in some kind of way. So, like, there are these kinds of relationships that are facilitated by the internet and then I think there's this whole other thing that's going on, which is just, like, um, when you, like, when you're a lonely person, like, it's hard to go out in the world and be social, but, like, overcoming those difficulties makes the payoff have, like, a contextual meaning. Like, it's like, well, I overcame my anxiety, and now it's like, I met someone, and, like, through that period of strife, I've had some moment of growth. 
Where, like, when you can circumvent that whole process and just be like, I'm going to watch a video, I think that is a little weird because it, like, delivers all the payoffs of socializing without making you do any of the hard work that makes socializing, like, meaningful or contextual. So, like, while people might be getting the good feelings of, like, watching ASMR or feeling less lonely, I don't know if it's a sustainable improvement in their life because it's not like they're, like, building networks or relationships that will support them over time. It's very much – I mean, I guess it's it's a little bit the same with porn where, like, it feels good to jerk off to porn, but that doesn't mean that you're, like, meeting someone that's going to, like, be there for you in any kind of way. So I'm not saying in, like, a pearl-clutching way, like, oh, ASMR is bad, but I do think it's, like, it's not going to solve the problem of loneliness. It's more of, like – uh an intervention that can be maybe good with other types of help for lonely people. Like porn isn't going to fix the problem of your sex life. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't watch porn. I mean, I don't feel like it does. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhat reminiscent of like the like idea. I I guess it must've originated when television first came around that like there'd be something like so entertaining that you, you know, it would take over your life. And this is like kind of the The boob tube. Yeah. So you get like sucked in and it's, so it's a little bit like, I don't know, like, the Matrix or like the the book Infinite Jest, it's it's like so, you know the fear of like something so great that you're like in the illusion and you, like actual reality you you ignore it. Uh, so it doesn't that that's like this is not that, but it is I don't know it it it, it is more like like that than just like watching like movie trailers or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, well, it's funny because like I thought about Infinite Jest a lot when I was working on this story because like the. The, the like the issue that's portrayed in that is like someone puts in this tape and they're like put into essentially a coma. This in some ways is like almost feels a little more sinister because it's like it's delivering the same kind of like intense pleasure, but it makes it seem like it's something that can like like oh it's not a big deal. Just these videos you watch, you're still lucid. It's like I, I think this a sort of insidious thing about like the way the internet really affects our daily functioning is is like we've integrate it into our reality in a way that's like it's normalized and natural that it's not like it's a person sitting alone in a closet drooling it's like people are like constantly tapping into this sorts of pleasure in the midst of their daily routines and like now we've created it to the point where it's like you can't opt out of it like you need to be checking your email you sort of in some fields need to be on social media and like i don't mean to be like oh it's dystopian but like the worst dystopian fantasies we had 20 years ago this is almost like it seems more normal and yet it's effect on our life is greater. So that does freak me out kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got, okay. So final question, maybe on this topic, um, <laughs> have any like corporations tried to start like making like the super ASMR that's, that's the, like is addictive and you need to watch the full hour kind of thing. Or, or is it all, is it all still this like hobbyist, like, it, like random people around the world doing it? Yeah, so it's more like, like, random people are making it now, and then corporations are using it in, like, advertising. Like, there was a Super Bowl ad this year with, like, the actress Zoe Kravitz, and it was, like, her opening a Michelob Ultra and, like, drinking it. And, like, people are using ASMR in advertising, but I think more in the way, like, oh, it's a trend and people love advertisements that are trendy. I don't think people are trying to use it, like, as subliminal messaging, and I don't think even, like... There are some YouTube artists that are making, like, 45-minute long ASMR videos with, like, really high production value, but I don't think it's quite at the level where, like, we don't even understand what it does well enough to exploit it for evil. When (laughs) when it crosses over into evil, it's almost accidentally because it's like, oh, these creators want to make money, so they're going to sell ads against it, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we'll see it get to a point where, like, people are doing mind control. Like, I don't know if we need to. I mean, I think we're all so willing to, like, go online and subject ourselves to, like, advertising all day. We don't really need mind control. Like, I just do it for free all day. <laughs> right. Right. Um, 
I mean, okay, I said this was the last question, but maybe one more. Is I mean, could there be, like, will someone someday make, like, an ASMR movie that, like, people go to in the theater and they, and they watch and feel good, like, surrounded by other people? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's funny because the most popular ASMR videos don't really have narrative through lines. They're literally just people, like, picking something up and, like, tapping on it and then, like, patting it. So uh, something you need to, like, look at something for, like, an hour and stay awake is, like, some type of narrative investment. So I feel like these videos work better shorter because the ones where the act, the artists try to do narratives, a lot of times the fans complain and they're like, can you just tap on this cup instead? Like, <laughs> I think like, like GB, when I was talking to her, cause she's like a former theater kid. And she was saying like, I love theater. I love writing like little sketches. And like, I put a lot of work into these sketches and like some of my fans like them, but for the most part, they're like, all right, we'll let you indulge your thing. But as long as you include like 35 minutes of tap- tapping on a cup in the midst of it, like. So I don't know if it's going to be adapted to the screen. Like, I, it would be pretty weird. I mean, it's weird already as is. Yeah, maybe like art, like an art school, like film school student or yeah. something will will try it. Um, I'm just imagining like you know the the um, you know the old like thing of like a woman is performing like in a, like a singing in a bar or something, and like the rowdy patrons are like shouting like you know show us your tits or something, and then right. and then this version is like tap on the cup, tap on the cup. That's what, is, that's what the people want these days. Just tap on a cup. There is something. Well, there are two things. Like, um, Whisper Lodge is this art installation that travels around, and it's a live ASMR show. So, like, you can go. It's almost like an escape room, but for, like, relaxation. Like, you, there's, like, an immersive environment, and, like, you encounter, like, ASMR experiences along the way. So there are ways of, like, adapting this into more substantial forms of entertainment. But, like, I don't know if it's going to be something as simple as, like, a movie or just, like, a hot lady tapping a cup. And then the other thought about that is a lot of people are interested in seeing, like, could this be integrated into, like, the spa space? Because, like, we already pay people to rub our bodies and, like, put weird creams on our face. So, like, when you abstract, like, a a massage or a facial, that seems really weird. So it kind of makes sense that, like, ASMR as a relaxing experience could fit in there. We just, like, like, when I tell people I went to this woman who, like, did all these bizarre interventions to me, everyone's like, that's so strange, but, like, it's not really any weirder than, like, a facial or a massage, which is also just, like, a bunch of random discrete movements that we've, like, packaged as a massage. Mm, yeah. So I think that's the future of it. Like, I really enjoyed my one-on-one ASMR session, like, more than I expected to, and I would maybe pay money for it again, even though I didn't feel ASMR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm also wondering if, you know, could there be, like, a touring show of, like, a single-person performer on stage? And, yeah, in an auditorium, and they're and they're tapping the cup or whatever. I, but maybe it is like it, you know this. It's hard to feel intimacy surrounded by uh, like five thousand other people. So maybe that wouldn't that wouldn't work. Well, like my mom and dad went to Amsterdam once, and they told me they went to a live sex show, and they were like, we got there, and it was like tour buses full of other tourists, and like it was the least sexy thing. Like you'd much rather just go watch porn at your house. So I think it's kind of the same scenario where it's like you want to have like a vulnerable intimate experience you probably don't want to do it in an audience or like that's really like the challenge of theater is like how do you make people do that collectively and mm-hmm. i don't know if asmr is going to be like the answer <laughs> okay so <laughs> let's let's end asmr chat there and talk for a that's minute great. about um a piece that you published uh last year that i remember reading at the time and uh and and finding interesting and enjoying it, it hitting on some parts of my own bio- biography. Um, so it was in Vox. The headline is Reconsidering the Jewish American Princess, How the Jap Became America's Most Complex Jewish Stereotype. Um, and it's a combination um, kind of biographical piece or memoirish piece and historical cultural analysis 
of the Jewish American princess or Jap, uh, which is not related to the anti-Japanese slur from the 1940s or whatever, but um, was a word that was said very often in my like middle school years uh, growing up in suburban New Jersey. So what... Um, Where what, in Jersey are you from? Um, South Orange in Essex County. Oh, okay, so yeah, you're in the, the midst of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, the Jap belt, uh, maybe some, some would put it. But, um, ha- okay, so how did you... Okay, so how did you decide that you wanted to write about Jewish American princesses and also to make it, like, a personal essay? So it started, like, I was trying to read this article. Like, I was just, like, very curious about, like, how did this stereotype come to be and, like, has it changed over time? And I kept looking, like, what is available to read on this? And, like, there were a lot of people feeling angry about the term or offended by it. But And there were some, like, academic papers from, like, people's undergrad thesis or whatever, like a little bit exploring the history, but there wasn't really, like, a thing that really brought all the stuff together and had any kind of, like, substantial analysis. So as I started looking for something to read, I was like, oh, I guess I just have to be the one to write this if I want it to exist in the world. Um, And then it wasn't initially a personal essay at all. I actually started working on it and doing the research. I was reading, like, a lot of Philip Roth, looking into, like, some different, I don't know, like, historical depictions of, like, Jewish women Um, Because I grew up reform and like I'm maybe more religious now than I was then, but like I wouldn't say I didn't grow up in a Jewish area, so like I don't have a lot of just like implicit knowledge of Jewish things. Like I've kind of encountered them randomly in adulthood. So as I was doing this research, I was getting very interested in it, but it felt like it was just a lot of ground to cover. And I was reading like histories of anti Semitism and Jewish stereotypes, and like it just kind of got too big and I set it aside for a while because I was like, I don't know how to make this into like a story. And then I I moved from LA back to New York and I was thinking a lot about Jewish identity again. And I started being like, Oh yeah, I really do want to read more about the Jap thing. And like the fact that I didn't grow up in a Jappy place, but then went to a Jappy camp started to like kind of inform the way I was thinking about the story. And I was like, maybe that needs to go in the story. And like, I don't love writing about myself for its own sake, but my editor was like, I think we really need some like context here, especially for people who aren't Jews and like, aren't going to know what, where this is coming from. Um, so it sort of became a personal essay in the editing process. And my editor, Julia Rubin at Vox, just kept being like, put more stuff about your life in here. Put more stuff about your life in here, um, which I think actually was, like, good advice. But, like, it was not the piece I set out to write. Um, but I'm happy it turned out that way because it otherwise would have just been, like, a lot of dry information about, like, I don't know, like, calling Jews, like, Shylocks or whatever. Yeah, well, I recommend people read the piece, uh, whatever their previous uh, encounters with the term chap. Um <laughs> And yeah, it, it, you give a lot, you give, you talk about like your grandparents and their family histories and your, your parents and your childhood. Um, so, okay. So the term, uh, I guess, so it like originates after World War II as, as Jews started entering like the middle and upper middle class. And yes. the type of, like the, the behavior of Jap was around before the term itself. Like, you start seeing depictions of, like, Jappy kind of people. And, like, the first book is really Marjorie Morningstar. I forget who the author is. And the second Herman, one... Herman Wook, right? Who yeah. just died? Like, yeah, yeah. And then uh, in Goodbye Columbus, the Philip Roth book, it comes up. And you, like, see depictions of these kind of, like, overachieving, but, like, high-maintenance, uh, upper-middle-class Jewish people that are, like, created from, like, the upper mobility after the Second World War and, like, sort of the success of, like, Jewish assimilation but you don't really see the term Jap start coming about until like the seventies. 
Uh, it's not really clear, like, when it was first used, but, like, first it's called Jewish Princess, then it's called Jewish American Princess. And I don't really know when it got shortened to Jack, but, like, I think it was sort of after, I mean, it was like the term Jap for Jews was coming up on the East Coast as it was descending for Japanese people on the West Coast. Uh, so it's uh-huh. like these two terminologies with the same word kind of like cross paths in history. And then at some point, I think on the East Coast, Jewish American princess is dominant. But if you talk to people on the West Coast, depending on where they live, like uh, the term for Japanese people is still very much a slur on, in places where there's a lot of Japanese people. So it's kind of a weird very American thing. Yeah, I definitely knew it in the Jewish sense as as a kid before I heard it. Yes, I heard that it was also used as a as a slur for Japanese people. Um, so yeah, so there's like literary uh, precedent. So um, I think I, I actually have mentioned this on the show before because I did an episode after Philip Roth died. But um, I'm like a, a Roth super fan, or at least was like as of a decade ago, and read read all of his novels. And uh, so I grew up in South Orange, which borders Newark. And Goodbye Columbus, the, the um, novella in his first um, book, he, uh, the main character, uh, Neil Klugman, right, um, mm-hmm. travels from, from Newark up the, like, up the hills and to go visit uh, uh, Brenda Potemkin. And supposedly, uh, someone, an adult told me this when I was young, that the actual woman who this character was based on lived in South Orange, the town where I grew up in, um, and in the like super uh wealthy neighborhood that was uh that's called Newstead but was also called Jewstead um <laughs> in my childhood because a lot of Jewish people lived there. So anyway, so yeah, so and you know, Roth has often been criticized for his depiction of women, especially Jewish women, and uh, I guess most famously the mother in um in uh Portnoy's complaint. But but uh Brenda Potemkin is kind of like the I don't. I don't think she's exactly the the archetype for what the the, the stereotype came to be, but because um, I I, well, I don't know. It's been a long time since I read it, but like she's her family's wealthy and they have this fridge in the basement with uh, fresh fruit uh, like overflowing from it, and she's had a nose job, and um, and the uh, as I recall, the, the family's wealth is kind of like. The, the father, like, had owned a company that made, like, um, toilets or something, for, and they got the army contract, so they became millionaires by <laughs> through, you know, plumbing fixtures and stuff like that. Uh, so they're, like, kind of nouveau riche. But she's not, I don't know, there's kind of, in the Jap as it came to, in my childhood, there was almost like a vulgarity to the stereotype, whereas it was more, it seemed like back in the 50s or whatever, it was more like, this is just this is like a Jewish woman who like wants to seem like just like the proper kind of like waspy woman. Yeah, and... I think it started off as like it's someone who's like almost they've so successfully assimilated that they've over assimilated and it's like become this caricature of like middle class sort of comfort where it's like, oh, they have all the things and like they have the fridge, they have the air conditioning, they have wall to wall carpeting, like all these kind of trappings of like the 60s that like showed like look Jews we're normal we're normal we're normal but like it's becoming so normal that you're almost ridiculous looking whereas then I think as the term kind of caught on it seems like it became a slur Jews use against other Jews to kind of police like that exact same thing where it's like oh like you're embarrassing us because like now that all the Jews like it's sort of like now that all the Jews are white you don't need to go so far and being like making such a mockery of ourselves like we can just be normal white people in america whereas i think in the beginning it was like so novel the idea that like 
a Jew would be like an assimilated white person and not like an ethnic minority. So I think as the Jews became more white, the idea that like you could be like transgressing normalcy became something that we like police a little more. Whereas in the 60s, I think it was just such a weird novelty to be like, oh, we're like not shtetl weirdos. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And in the, the, the nose job is like the symbol of that in the, um, in, uh, in the Roth that he, that uh, it's like daddy's money bought the thing that, that made her look like a Gentile instead of, instead of looking like a Jew. Um, so you, you, you um, give like, so then it also became associated like a lot with like acquisitiveness and especially like luxury brands. And, you know, so there was like, um, there was this famous um, thing called the preppy handbook that came out in like the early eighties. So then there was a parody of it called the Jap handbook and it listed like all the brands that you needed to have if you wanted to be a true Jap. And I guess like tongue in cheek, since it was like a kind of a parody of a parody. Um, but in my, yeah. So in like my childhood, it was, um, which was like late eighties, early nineties. It was like, it was probably mostly synonymous with like spoiled brat kind mm-hmm. of thing. And like, yeah, daddy's money. She gets what she wants. Um, like, you know, she's kind of like, Socially, she's high on the pecking order, and um, but you know, like she's really just a bitch at heart. Like that, like that was that was probably how we thought. Like at, when I was thirteen years old, that was probably what, what I thought when I called someone Jap. Um, so what did it what did it mean when like you heard it as as a kid? So I'm a little bit younger than you, and I think my peak Jap phase was like maybe it be the era that I'm thinking of it, like maybe begins with the Spice Girls and it ends with like Juicy Couture, the sweatsuit company going out of business. So like, I do think like in the late nineties, early thousands, like Jap kind of was like inflected with this weird girl power thing where it's like, she's a bitch, but like being a bitch was kind of a cool thing at that point where Mm -hmm. it was like, like girl power, I get what I want, but it was still like, I think because I was a child, like, to be like, I get what I want. It's not the same as being like, I make my own money and I buy what I want. You're still like, I get what I want from my dad. So like, right. it's the same thing that they were talking about in the 70s and the 80s. But I think because of like the weird feminisms of like the early 90s, it, it became this thing where it's like, I'm proud to be a spoiled brat. But it like really was the same thing. But it was like, had new language for it or something. Um, but I don't think it was as much of a slur in the time. I think it was like a little bit aspirational to be like, I want to be a Jappy girl. Like I want to be like a high maintenance popular girl that tells people what to do and like has the coolest clothes and is like kind of not afraid to speak their mind. Even if it's like in this kind of like annoying way, like it's still a judge. It's still a judgment you make against someone. But like, I I think it's more of a description of a particular type of person at that point than it is to be like, Oh, I'll get these fucking Japs out of my bat mitzvah. Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all these Japs are ruining my bat mitzvah. And, and then the, you know, the, 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 expl- the, like, increasing importance culturally of bar and bat mitzvahs is like, goes along with this, I guess. And like, like my mother was, um, was not bat mitzvahed, um, you know, and she, it would have been 1963. And because that just like, they, they only had bar mitzvahs. They didn't do bat mitzvahs. Um, and yeah, so then it, it, you know, so if you're rich, it becomes this crazy, <laughs> crazy event. Um, so Juicy Couture, um, let's talk about that just for a moment. So I like, yeah, I think I was a little too old to like have peers that were super into that, but I didn't know that, it, that the two, that it was created by two Jewish women. And also yeah. that like juicy, like the word Jew is kind of in there and that it was like a Jewish, a totemic uh, item for young Jewish women. Yeah, like, I, I don't think, 
like I, I remember they had one shirt that said Juicy American Princess. So like obviously like they were very aware of like who their market was, but like the market for Juicy Couture products also like it was just anyone that kind of wanted to like project that like Jappy bad bitch persona. So like lots of celebrities wore those sweatsuits at the time, and I think like, it, like Paris Hilton like would yeah had them right. Yeah, so I think it's, like, whereas, like, the embarrassment of being a Jap in, like, maybe the 70s and the 80s was, like, the excess of it, I think by the time that Juicy Couture came around, it was very much, like, oh, we love excess, like, we're driving Hummers, it's 2004, like, bling bling, like, people saying, like, all these sort of, like, corny, like, white people saying, like, rap aphorisms all of a sudden, like, it was just a very peculiar time where, like, the over-excess of, like, being a Jap was, like, something that mainstream culture was really ready for. Um, (laughs) We, like, had these couple years where it was like that was just the cool way to look and to dress and like I mean Japs are like always underdressed in kind of like an overdressed way and I think that was really how people dressed in the thousands where they wanted to wear like slob clothes with like jewelry um, which is kind of like a classic Jap way to be like a slouchy sweater with like a tennis bracelet or something Um, so yeah it was like I feel sort of privileged to be alive in this like very particular moment where like this very particular kind of Jewish identity was like circulating in the mainstream um and I I think a lot about it now like as like an an American Jew with like a lot of negative feelings about Israel I'm always looking like what are touchstones of like Jewish American identity that really are like distinctly American and I think the Jap is one of those things like I'm sure there's Japs in Canada and there's Japs in Australia (laughs) but like it really is like a product of like Jewish American assimilation and like Jews integrating into like American pop culture. And I think like, even though it's sort of an ugly stereotype of women, it is something that we have as like American Jews. That's like so distinctly American and so detached from like any kind of like Israel centric discourse that I feel like there's like a real potential here for like people of my generation to like band together as American Jews, like around this very weird artifact. And I think that's maybe why I'm so drawn to it is because it's like, it's political, but in a way that's not about, like, Zionism. Okay, that's interesting. So you want to kind of, like, take it back, essentially. Like, it was a slur, but you want to, like, celebrate what it stands for. I don't know if I want to celebrate what it stands for, but I think I just feel drawn to it because it's, like, doing this thing that not a lot of other elements of Jewish identity are doing right now. Like, something I think about a lot is, like, sort of, like, Jewish commies in Hollywood in, like, the Blacklist era or, like, McCarthyism. Like, I feel very drawn to that right now where I'm, like, oh, like, this is, like, a thing that happened in, like, Jewish-American history that's, like, all about being Jewish and an American and, like, fitting into American culture. And, like, something about that's very interesting to me, if not, like, it was a sort of bad, weird time, but also it was, like, a particular kind of Jew that came out of that moment. And I feel that way a lot about, like, Japiness because it's, like, it's just such a distinctly American-Jewish way of being, and we have so few of those things. And it, it sort of inspires me to think, like, what can a Jew be in our current moment? Like, what should Jews be doing? It's like, I, I don't know. I like, I feel very excited about like Jewish American identity as a distinct identity from just like global Jewishness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you said, like, as I think like the, the majority of younger American Jews are like, don't feel the strong connection to Israel that uh, our parents did. And, um, or at least are willing to view it a lot more critically. Um, so is, is there like, is there a Jewish American prince? Like, is that a thing? Or I was trying to think like, what is the corresponding male stereotype? And I guess it's like, in one way, so the Jewish American princess like wants to marry like the Harvard, you know, the doctor from Harvard medical school, like that's Mm -hmm. a stereotype. So then, so then 
and you know it would be a shanda if uh, she married a goy so yeah. she has to marry a jewish nice jewish boy so yeah so it's like the nice jewish boy or the mensch is kind of like the corresponding stereotype or there's like the nebbish like the woody allenish kind right. of like nebbish like weakling uh jewish character um but 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 th- neither of those have to do with like consumerism Really, it's more like you know, just be just be a good boy and study hard and you know, make make some money and have some kids. So yeah, I, I, what, do you think there's <laughs> what what do we say about the Jewish American princes? Yeah, I mean, I think like stereotypes of men are always just sort of like like we have a lot more mean things to say about women as a culture than we do about men. But like, I do think there is a Jewish American prince, or at least like I've definitely met them. Like. I feel like I've had, like, cousins and relatives and even, like, some of my brother's friends that are, like, I don't know, it's, like, they get into one thing and then all of a sudden it's, like, the the overbearing women in the family, like, just to pick up on another Jewish stereotype, but, like, all they're, like, you like Nike sneakers? Like, we're going to get you every kind of Nike sneakers and, like, there's these certain type of socks you like. Like, I'm going to buy you all these socks or whatever. Like, I think, like, I... I there are, like, consumerist rituals around, like, Jewish American manhood that exist. I think they have less of, like, a judgmental connotation because, like, we just, at this point, expect Jewish men to be wealthy and successful. So it's not like, oh, you need to leech off daddy's money. I think it's more it's like, oh, well, there's a certain way we're used to living. And, like, because, like, the women of our culture, we think of them as a certain overbearing way, we will make sure that the men are, like, decked out in the correct clothes or whatever. Um, but I don't think it's like as harmful as a stereotype. Yeah, because it's the it, the, the 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 Jap is like uh, grasping, and all she cares about is money and luxury products or whatever. Well, she and needs a man, like she needs like a dad or a husband. Whereas a Jewish American prince like benefits from sort of the like doting of like the overbearing Jewish American mother, but ultimately he's not looking for like a meal ticket. He can just like go get a career. Right. Well, you know what? Maybe we need. Maybe we need a Jewish American queen, um, no yeah. longer a princess, becoming a queen. Maybe we need that modeled uh, for us in the culture. Uh, I'm trying to think who who are who are Jewish American queens. Like maybe Amy Schumer. Um, although I don't know if she married a is, Jewish is she man. Jewish? Yeah, she's Jewish. Oh, I don't think I even knew. She's so blonde. <laughs> she is related to Chuck Schumer. She's like Chuck Schumer's second cousin. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know if we have like. I mean, I guess we do have sort of, like, more serious stereotypes of Jewish women, which are, like, maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something. But, like, that almost, like, I think if it was, like, the 50s, someone would probably call her a Jap. Like, this very, like, striving, overachieving, kind of, like, upwardly mobile Jewish woman. Like, I think the Jap stereotype initially had room for those kinds of women, where now it's, like, definitely has more of, like, a vapid connotation. But, like, there's, like... Like, there are Jewish women everywhere now, and they come in all flavors, so, like, I, I think the Jap is just, like, a historical curiosity that's, like, still fun and interesting. I, I don't know if we need, like, new iterations of it. Do you, are, do kids still call each other at summer sleepaway camp? Do they still, like, think of, think of this term, or is, or is it, like, passing out, passing away? I'm not sure. Like, I definitely, like, I have cousins that are, like, 15, and I definitely, like, follow them on Instagram, and I look at their account, and I'm like, oh, these are the Japs of their friend group. Like, I can see who the people are, but I don't know if they use the word. Maybe that's just what they, like, are like now. I, I really don't know if the word is, like, still being circulated among teenagers. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, this, uh, it's hard to be, it's hard to find out exactly what, contemporaneously, what teenagers are really saying to each other. But yeah. if, I don't know, I, I've, it's, I mean, it's kind of a slur, 
It also is the same word as an actual slur. And the right. kids today are more sensitive to, uh, you know, those kind of slurs and insults than uh, in my childhood. So maybe, maybe it's not like, it's not sin, even if the essential type still is out there in the wild. Yeah, I, like, I don't know if they're actively reclaiming it, and they're definitely not really, I feel like teens today aren't loving slurs like teens once did, so, like, <laughs> it might just die out. Yeah. I, who knows? Yeah. Like, you won't find out until, like, the teens of now are old enough to, like, write about it, because, like, I don't know how to, like, I don't have Snapchat, like, I don't know how to access that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to, you, you would need to, like, go undercover or something, or, or like, a, right. as, like, an anthropologist would. Um, okay, I think those are all the Jap questions I have. Is there anything else? You want to say about Japs before we wrap up? No, I mean, uh, that's, I think I, uh, that's it. Okay, so the, the, the links to the pieces we discussed uh, that you wrote, um, will be below this. Um, so how can people find, uh, find your content if they want to find it? Um, so I'm Jamie Kalis on Twitter, J-A-M-I-E-K-E-I-L-E-S, and I have a website, and I don't know, set a Google alert for me, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I'm online. I write for the New York Times Magazine. I write for a bunch of other places. And I, I don't know, like, I, I'm on email. You can email me. Like, I'm just a person out there in the world, so. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, thank you for um, taking the time to talk about these uh, two, not, I guess they're not really related subjects, but um, but I guess women, women uh, you know, the predominance of women <laughs> is the uh, is possibly the link. But thank you for coming on. <laughs> um, so, and thank you to our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah, thanks everyone. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.